Part 4 I was born and raised and died in Las Vegas. I never wanted to be anywhere else. There's really nothing this city can't give you. That could just be my sheltered opinion, though. I never lived anywhere else. Get away from the strip, and it's like a small town. Then there's the beautiful open desert landscapes, and of course, if you want the nightlife, we're the capital for that. I went through the school system, then I went to UNLV to get my degree in business, and I got a job in the business development department of a startup law firm a few weeks after that. I detested that job for millions of reasons, and after two years, I finally worked up the courage to leave it. I bummed around for almost another full year, then I got a job preparing houses for a real estate firm. The people there were... I couldn't have imagined such an enriching environment, especially after the jobs I had previous to that. I immediately began studying for my license, got it, then started trying to get clients. I got lucky and sold my first house a few months later. The firm was so impressed they offered me a position on the staff with all the benefits and connections. Naturally, I had clients pouring in after that, and suddenly, my life seemed like it was all figured out. A few years later, I finally realized that I had become so well-known in the Vegas real estate community that I didn't need to share my commissions with the agency anymore. So I started my own firm, again with the full support of all the agents that had literally made me into the sales machine I was at the time. I sold houses under my own company for almost two decades before I got bored. I realized that my work was all that I did, and outside of the lifestyle it afforded me, it wasn't very fulfilling. I had a handful of friends, not a lot of love interests outside of a very short-lived and unsatisfying marriage, and I didn't do much of anything other than networking and smooching the same breed of rich people night after night. I thought long and hard about it, but I came to the decision that I would, at the very least, take a sabbatical and assess my options. That was the first and only time I considered leaving Las Vegas. I ended up connecting with an old work buddy who recommended me for a position in the Cosmos Accounting Department, which sounded awful, but I figured I'd try it, and if it didn't work out, I'd take it as a sign to get out of here. Fortunately, I met Danny right after. I was lucky enough to have options, and I could either leave or stay for any timetable, so I decided to stay and see where Danny took me. I don't know what it was about him. But I do realize now that I was hanging out in those abandoned dive bars for the exact reason that I didn't want to meet anyone. I would specifically head to a place off the strip, then toward the back of the bar, and avoid the six to ten drunks that would wander in throughout the night. Of course, on another level, I also didn't want to be alone. Otherwise, I would have just drank at my place. The thing is that almost none of us know what we want, at almost any point in our lives. We're all some degree of Don Draper manifestation. That's why stuff like prayer works so well. You can call it meditation if you want, but uh, the fact that I'm dead and call it prayer means something. A lot of times, life is just stumbling from distraction to distraction, running out the clock because the idea of not knowing what we want means we can't pursue it. And how can we have a meaningful life if we don't even know what that means? Sometimes this charade is obvious, like alcoholism or burying yourself in your favorite baseball team, but most of the time it's not. We can get lost in the work we think we love or in people we think we should be loyal to. It's all just a mess, and there's no way to know whether it's legit or an illusion. No therapist can tell you. God definitely won't come down and give you a hint. 
It's just you. You do your best and figure it out. Maybe pray a little on it. Like, really pray. As in, be open to a conclusion you might not like. Do that for enough years and maybe you'll develop actual, applicable wisdom and save yourself a few years of ennui. Or don't. Most don't even know they're off. Someone once said, some people are so far behind, they think they're leading. I forget who. It's a hard thing to realize you're behind, especially when you have no idea when that happened or why it did. I wasn't going to get married again. I tried it once and it was an experience. I was 24 years old and for some lucky reason, we made it 11 years without having any kids. It was thrown around, but we never like planned it and it never happened, so it never needed to be addressed. When I met Danny, I never thought we'd even be a couple. We had gone out for a few times, and I still didn't see it that way. We were really friends first. I think we were attracted to each other. But when we would meet for drinks, we would just talk and talk. There was no sexual tension or anything pressing us to move into something new or take action on impulses. We just chatted. I think our main connection was in how we were so similar. Neither of us had ever met anyone like the other, and we appreciated that a lot. We became official, I guess, about a month later. I finally leaned in and kissed him one night after dinner. It should have been awkward, but it wasn't. He smiled back at me, and we held hands as we walked along the parking lot without saying anything. The thing I think was so special about us was that nothing ever changed. From the moment we met to the moment he said goodbye to me, we were always the same. He didn't get antsy when I called him my boyfriend. When I started squeezing him every waking second like a crazy person after we got engaged, he just went with it. After 10 years together, he still looked at me with that warm, welcoming regard that made my knees shake and the knots in my back untie all at the same time. The question of kids came up right away with him. He was honest and told me that he didn't want them. He was scared. I could see it. For the record, I think Danny would make a good dad. He'd need someone for balance, but he has it in him. One time, he spent like the whole night talking about it. I'm weird where I want to develop as much of a living picture of something once it gets in my head. So we came up with the names, looks, interests, and we just kept going with it. We talked about how Amanda, our firstborn, would break her leg in a gymnastics accident when she would be nine, and it would derail all of her Olympic promise, and she would have to learn to focus on something else and realign her goals. She would eventually move on and start painting, and then she'd become a curator at a major metropolitan museum. Danny and I would always get tickets to the exclusive showcases, and more importantly, the after parties. Then we'd have two boys within a few years of each other who would be little brainiacs and get into rocket science or advanced mathematics. That's as far as we got. We didn't really talk about it again. Guess neither of us really wanted the experience. Just not for us. Danny also needed balance when it came to finances. A lot of it. At times, it felt like he could just snap his fingers and cash would appear. Then he'd blink and it'd all be gone. I would joke with him that he treats the poker room like his ATM, although it was really more like a slot machine. He went bust only twice with me. The first time was before we were married, which is a good thing. Gave me a chance to see what I was getting into. I mean, when he told me he was a pro poker player, I didn't know how to take that. I'm a jerk, so I asked him immediately how much money he made that year, and he answered about as honest as a poker player can. He inflated it by about 15%. Then I asked him about how much he had saved, as in not part of his bankroll, and he answered even more honestly, telling me that it was all his bankroll. The first time he lost it all, he came to my place right away. He didn't call. He showed up and he looked normal. I poured us some wine and asked him how it went. 
I know he'd been playing because he'd smelled like he'd been bathing in marble reds and musk. I used to call it Dijon number nine. His eyes were red, and he had huge bags under them, too. And he'd always look like that, so it didn't tell me much. He broke down a ton of hands for me. I still barely understood poker at that point, but I did my best to follow. Then he told me about the one that broke him. I knew he was very upset because he said each wrong move twice, like he was already healing and knew that he would avoid next time. I asked him what he was going to do now, and he said he had his apartment paid until the end of the month and he could probably get another month before they evicted him. He would need to scrounge up some cash and get back on the tables to try and grind his bankroll back up, and he would go from there. Again, I was still new to this lifestyle, so I clarified if playing more poker with other people's money was the best idea, and he looked at me like I just told him to shove pre-flop out of position with a 4-8 offsuit. I eventually learned a thing or two. From there, I asked him how much he would need to get back on the tables. Then I told him I'd float him a thousand. I was doing really well at this time, and I liked him. Girls do stupid things when they like boys, and even if he took it and punted it all in the next session, it still wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. He didn't want to take it. He told me he could get some from his cousin, then some from his aunt, and then he could grind it all back to them with interest in a few weeks. I tried to lighten the mood by asking him why he didn't want to earn me some money. It was like a light bulb went off in his head because he actually laughed for the first time all night. Long story short, he took the money. Two days later, he took me to dinner and handed me a chase envelope with $1,500 in it. That was the magic of Danny Messina. The next time, he lost it all. We were bound by ritual, so I definitely wasn't getting out of that. That one was tough. We'd been together for eight years, married for six. I was actually out of town for a bit, visiting my sister in Montreal, and he sent me a text saying that he was the worst tailspin of his career. I really did love how honest he always was. I knew him well enough to not suggest a break from the game or even a drop in stakes. Instead, I told him to get a good long sleep and then a big breakfast and get his mind clear with some stupid TV or something. I came back home a couple days later and he wasn't there. I was tired from the flight, so I just went to bed. When I woke up, he was sleeping next to me in his jeans, coat, and shoes. I let him sleep and when he woke up and came to the kitchen, he told me everything. I could tell he'd been crying, something I'd never seen and saw again. Poor guy had been walking up and down the strip just suffering, feeling useless. He told me he had promised himself when he got married he wouldn't play like he used to, but when I came down to it, he picked the cards over me. He had been so stressed out that he was ready to just sleep on the street. He was really going through it. Finally, he decided to just come home. It was a weird situation where he was at his lowest, and naturally, he would have to come to me for support but he couldn't because I was the one he let down. In the same way he believed, he had chosen poker over me when he had made that last call. I saw clearly that he picked me over his own ego by coming home and facing the music. Not many things beat out a poker player's ego. I told him that I was disappointed, but I know who I married, and I'm extra careful with our money because of that, so we'd be fine. Keyword being we. He was so embarrassed, he promised he would never play again and I told him that was an agreement we both knew he couldn't stick to. The best thing he could do for me would just to be careful, set some bankroll rules, and stick to them. He should do it out of respect to himself and respect to our partnership. He never went broke again during my lifetime. He also never stopped playing, thank God. He used to tell me that I was the only thing that made him happier than hitting a river with one out. Sounds corny, but if you knew him, 
You'd know why that was the sweetest thing anyone ever said to me. This stuff's boring, so I'll do the broad strokes. I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in March of 2032. It was bad. I didn't have a genetic proclivity to it. It just kind of showed up. The funny thing was that, of course, Danny's mom died of the same thing, which was as close as it ever got to my family. I started treatment right away. I told Danny to keep playing, and we would do our best to stay as normal as possible. But the worse it got, the less he played. I couldn't have asked for a better husband, and the best thing was that I didn't need to wait to see how he cared for me as my body destroyed itself to realize that. He showed me his true colors every day of our life together. When we knew it wouldn't take long for it to finish, I started to worry about him. He only had me. He had his poker buddies and some family back in LA, but we were partners. We loved it that way, and the only bad part was if one of us left prematurely. Danny had plenty of years left, and he would have to do it without me which I'm sure he could do, but I also know he wouldn't want it that way. I had taken care of the money enough to give him plenty for the transition, and he'd get more from various policies, but Danny never cared about the money. That's what made him a great card player and what made him an even better person. All he wanted was to be around you. He wanted to know what you thought and how you ticked. He just wanted to share everything of real worth with the people he loved. If you gave him that, he'd be as happy as anyone could be happier than hitting a river with one out. Once the illness took me, I'd be unable to give that to him, and I was afraid how he'd manage. But then it happened. I died on Wednesday in December. He would have to go on. For Other People's Money, the season finale of the Matsudenza Myths, read by Chrissy Britt. There's only one part left, so make sure you're subscribed and caught up before the finale next Monday. Also, remember my debut novel, Angie's Move, is available on Amazon for purchase right now, paperback and ebook. Thank you so much for listening, and the whole season will end next Monday with part five, Home.